Hey there, and welcome to Inside Intercom. Intermittently over the past few months, we've been releasing our growth series, where we're picking the minds of practitioners at some of this generation's fastest growing and most successful software companies. In each of those interviews, we always ask the guest, who in growth do you think we have the most to learn from? And one name just keeps coming up again and again and again. So of course, we knew we had to get that person on the show. That's Andreessen Horowitz's newest general partner, Andrew Chen. Andrew has advised a whole slew of name brand companies on how to grow, including Dropbox, Front, AngelList, Gusto, Boba Guys, Product Hunt, and many more. But he's probably best known for the invaluable essays he shares with the community on his blog, andrewchen.co. He's written more than 650 of them over the past decade, and they've been featured and quoted in the likes of the New York Times, Fortune, Wired, and the Wall Street Journal. For the past few years up until this spring, Andrew was head of growth at Uber. He first looked at the driver's supply and then was in charge of growing rider demand. That is, until he decided to link up with Andreessen and help build the next generation of great companies. So long story short, Andrew hosted me over at his new office so we could talk about the lessons he's learned at the likes of Dropbox and Uber, the changing landscape of customer acquisition, how his law of shitty click-throughs, a timeless essay of his, manifested itself in today's growth channels, and so, so much more. One last bit of housekeeping here, though. If you enjoy my chat with Andrew and you don't want to miss any future Inside Intercom conversations, subscribe to our show on iTunes or give us a follow on Spotify. And with that, let's pick up my chat with Andreessen Horowitz's newest partner, Andrew Chen. You're listening to Inside Intercom. Intercom, making internet business personal at scale. Learn more at intercom.com. Andrew, welcome to Inside Intercom. It's really great to be here in uh, the Andreessen Horowitz offices. Usually we, we do this over at my place, but it's a lot more fun to get, get out and get to uh, see people in their own element. Um, thanks for joining us. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so congratulations on the move. Obviously, you just started in this job a couple of weeks ago, and um, it's a sort of a little bit of a homecoming for you in that you were in the VC world previously. Right. How are you settling in? Yeah, so this is, I'm wrapping up my fourth week at the firm, and it's been just incredible. The people are are really great. And it's such a positive and happy job to have some of the smartest people in the world, smartest entrepreneurs that are out there, come and tell you about all the ways that they're going to change the world. So that's it's it's been really great. That's awesome. So what drew you back? Was there a particular challenge or itch that you're wanting to scratch? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think especially in this world of you know how you grow your business and how you acquire new customers, how do you retain them, how do you engage them, this is just such a important topic for entrepreneurs. And so I found that after a couple of years at Uber, where I'd been just like laser focused thinking about ride sharing, that it really excited me to bring all the knowledge and skills that I've built over my career and actually scale and help, you know, a lot of different entrepreneurs and make a big impact across the ecosystem. So, so I got, was super excited about that first Mm -hmm. and foremost. The second thing is just, you know, I think, you know, Andreessen Horowitz is is the firm that for me as an entrepreneur, I would always like want to work with. Yeah. And I've known Mark and Ben for a long time and they originally seed funded a startup of mine many years ago. And so I think it's it was just such an attractive thing to be like, okay, cool, let's let's work somewhere where you have a awesome group of entrepreneurs that are in it to help other entrepreneurs. And a lot of our listeners are going to know you best through your writing, but isn't that how Mark originally found you back yes. in two thousand seven? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So you know, I moved to the Bay Area about 10 years ago, and I was basically busy writing down everything that I was learning in my first year, which was great. At the time, everyone was like, 
are you crazy? This is your like competitive advantage. Like, why are you writing everything down? And so one of the things that, you know, got me excited was like, well, I'm going to give this all away because I'm going to meet really amazing, interesting people. Mm -hmm. And so my first year in the Bay Area, um, I actually got a cold email from Mark that was like, hey, let's hang out. And he was, you know, working on his own stuff at the time. And so that's kind of, you know, went from there. We've gotten to work with a whole slew of interesting companies in the years since then. Gusto, Product Hunt, Angel List, Boba Guys even. Right. Uh, another one of the companies <laughs> that, that you've gotten to do a lot of work right. with has also had a very exciting spring, and that's Dropbox. They just had their very successful IPO, obviously. When I think about growth and Dropbox, there's a famous talk from Drew Houston all those years ago when he went through the sort of startup lessons learned deck, and there's things in there like, you know, we were spending 200 or $300 to acquire a customer that was maybe worth 90 and we learned to shift towards virality, and there's all sorts of great stuff in there. Right. It really is a classic talk. How did your involvement with Dropbox start? When did you get connected with them and how'd that go? Yeah. So Drew obviously started and Rosh uh, started their their company and put it through Y Combinator. And so in the early years, I got to know a lot of the folks, you know, within the YC community, including Drew. And he was during that period of time working with Sean Ellis, mm-hmm. who's a close colleague of mine and, you know, sort of coined the term growth hacking. Yep. So we would we would spend time together and we'd talk about a lot of these interesting challenges. You know, I think Dropbox was so, so unique and so innovative um, and is, is also super unique and innovative today because of this thread that they've been following over a long period of time, which is to take something that is like, honestly, relatively like just part of your workflow, right. like storing files, mm-hmm. but really innovating around making that spread because of the way that that people are working with each other, mm-hmm. right? And so the the really early experiments that you're talking about happened during a time when they really knew that storing and syncing your files was very high retention. You know, this is something where it's kind of like you put your files in there and once it's syncing, you just want to leave it alone, right? It's just mm-hmm. something that like uh, switching to a different service is something that is going to take like a lot of effort. Yeah. And so, you know, the, the, the really interesting early, early story is that they had amazing retention, but not a lot of top line growth. Mm-hmm. And the team's remarkable insight was, well, if we add folder sharing and then all of a sudden you're taking your storage product and then you're sharing these folders with other people so that then there's built in virality, there's built in virality. And and that's really, you know, this intrinsic natural virality that's there. And I think that's a missing part of the story, because I think oftentimes people, you know, if anything, they're, they're actually more recognized for the like give and get disk Mm -hmm. space thing. When in fact, it's that intrinsic virality that really, you know, powers things. And so I think they, you know, did an amazing job um, with that, obviously bringing that all the way up to many, many hundreds of millions of users. And then their products like you know, paper, their products for the enterprise are all kind of extensions of that core Yeah, there's sort of associated you... jobs, right, with with the purpose of what Dropbox is built for, and they're finding ways to grow into those spaces. Right, right, exactly. And I think that that is really one of the most, you know, exciting parts about um, products that are happening in the workplace, right? Um, you know, B2B kind of bottoms-up SaaS mm-hmm. companies, even Intercom, right, is that there is a lot of viral spread that happens because so many people are, you know, busy collaborating with each other. And rather than having, you know, so many, so many of us, you know, spent years and years and years working on this like social graph, you know, concept that there's actually kind of like this very interesting workplace graph Mm -hmm. that's based on all the people that you're working on, you know, projects with documents that you're editing together. And I think that, you know, Dropbox, Slack, a lot of these kind of collaboration, you know, tools that are emerging are exactly the start of a whole new tidal wave 
of software products within the enterprise that actually really understand the relationship between people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a, it's, it's, there's a consolidation there, but it's not consolidation within a single product. It's sort of within an ecosystem. Right. And um, another thing from those early learnings from Drew I, that sticks with me is he talks about, you know, people weren't really weren't really looking for a way to replace the USB drive in those early days. And right. that was such a huge learning for him. And so that's why they sort of shifted to that virality angle. Totally. Yeah. And I think, you know, one of the things that I often do when I'm analyzing the growth strategy of a new product is I skip the homepage. Mm-hmm. I don't look at the homepage, right? Because the homepage is sort of what the company thinks it should be, right? But oftentimes people experience new products through some kind of a side door, yeah. right? And that side door is like an invite. It's a shared folder. In the case of YouTube, I very rarely go to the YouTube homepage. Like most of the time you go to some detail page where the a video mm-hmm. is playing and that's the beginning of your experience, right. right? And so when you're in a world where no one's looking for a shared USB drive, yeah, right, that's, that's, not, that's not a compelling pitch. However, if you get a email from one of your close colleagues that says, hey, for this really critical project that we're working on, here's a shared folder with all the things that you, know, you, need to, you need to look at and let's use this to keep it up to date. Obviously, that is an insanely compelling value yep. proposition and has nothing to do with a shareable USB drive. And so shifting from a lot of the projects that you've done consulting and advising for places where you've been an investor yourself, you did spend the last three years in-house at Uber. I believe you joined on the supply side. Is that correct? Right. Yeah. So I, I was at Uber for just under three years and I originally started on the driver side of the business. Mm-hmm. And you know, as, as everyone kind of knows related marketplaces, you know, the supply side is often the trickiest, hardest side, yeah. right? And the reason is, is is really simple. What happens typically is, you know, on the supply side, you get this professionalization that tends to happen where a small number of folks end up being able to, you know, they figure out, oh, I can make a little money. And then they're like, oh, I might as well even make even more yeah. money, right? And so, you know, that these are the eBay power sellers, these are the folks on um, Uber that are driving, you know, 40 plus hours a week. Mm-hmm. And so that group is very finicky because, by the way, they're using the driver app in some cases 10 hours a day. Right. And so growing that base is incredibly valuable. And so, you know, w- when I joined the company, Travis and, and Ed put me on the driver side of the problem on how do we how do we grow our driver base? How do we acquire more and more folks? Um, and so that was super fun. And then, you know, my last uh, year and a half at the company was spent growing the rider side. So I was kind of seeing both sides of the marketplace, which is which was yeah. super fun. So we'll get to that transition in a minute, but you get in on the supply side and this is only three years ago. So company is already massive at that point. When you have a market that's so big already, I mean, where do you where do you start? Because it already sort of established systems in place. I mean, how did you prioritize all the different <laughs> problems you could have solved? Right, right. I mean, I think, you know, it's funny because I think when you look inside any of these hyper growth companies, what you find is that first and foremost, they have, and and this is a good signal, right? Which is that they've grown so fast organically that they've actually not really needed to necessarily go super deep on the data and, you know, churn models and understanding all the kind of nuances. Mm -hmm. So I think the first step of anybody coming into one of these teams is to focus on just understanding what data is what the hell is going on. Right. And you got to do that first. Right. The second piece is then to identify some of the key opportunities 
that are actually, you know, in there. And then you want to then execute and then you want to, you know, measure and like iterate and you want to kind of execute that loop mm -hmm. as fast as you can. So I think, you know, for us on the driver side, there were two kind of really obvious things coming in that needed a bunch of help. I think the very first part is for anyone who's actually tried to sign up as an Uber driver, um, you quickly figure out that actually it's a really long process because you actually have to sign up. You have to give a lot of information. You have to give your a copy of your driver's license. You have to get background checked. In some countries, like in Europe, you have to get licensed. So you know it actually takes several months to become an Uber driver. And so this is this kind of high consideration, high intent sign up funnel is is kind of similar to the same problem that like you know fintech companies mm -hmm. might face like a wealth front yeah. or if you are a long complicated you know you have to do an api integration if you're like a b2b company you know it sort of feels like that and so a lot of this is really trying to understand well you know what are, what are the places where you know folks are falling off what's the order of operations in terms of like how much you need to ask people do you need to ask people for their email? Is a phone number okay? Is, you know, do you need to actually have, you know, their full address up front before you do all that stuff? Mm -hmm. Or can you kind of defer that and get them like excited about the opportunity before you try to pull them through? Yeah. And so when you ended up transitioning to then the um, the demand side of the equation with writers, right. was that a really different muscle for you? Or were you able to apply a lot of the same frameworks? Compare and contrast those for me a little bit. Right. Yeah. So so the thing to, to think about with the drivers is that they're almost like small businesses, mm -hmm. right? They're very motivated by um, you know, earnings. That's really you know what they're focused on. They have a very long, complicated funnel to get all the way to yeah. the end. One example of something that really works on the supply side is referrals, yep. right? So drivers referring other drivers, you know, that's something where because drivers are in it for earnings, you know, referrals is like awesome. And it actually selects for drivers that are even better. Mm -hmm. Now let's compare that to the rider side. You know, rider side is usually much simpler to, you know, sign up, right? Because you're basically just put in your phone number and you install yep, you, you know, want a low friction you app. want them to sort of have that aha moment right. of having the car show up and get in and be seamless exactly right and and you know you still need a credit card in many cases in other parts of the world we actually just go also all cash so that lowers the friction even more so you're talking about a, a order of magnitude difference in terms of the complexity of the funnel right so that's different the other thing that's different is that the channels become, you know, different. I was just talking about how referrals work so well for drivers because drivers are trying to earn more. Yeah. Now, think of it this way. If you have a rider that's in it to get a discount, you know, what kind of rider are they going to be? They're probably going to be a rider that doesn't spend as much money, yeah. right? So <laughs> referrals actually brings, you know, slightly like less, you know, good, um, you know, riders. Right. So I think you find a bunch of these nuances in there that are, that are very interesting. I think, you know, one of the obvious observations about Uber these days is that, the driver side has more churn mm -hmm. also than the rider side. The riders kind of like start by taking rides to the airport and then they're like, oh, this is pretty cool. Like I should take it when I'm out, you know, and yeah. out and about. Those, and, those levers know. like fixed rates that you lock people into right. for a week or two or things like that. They totally. just become more habit forming. Totally. Exactly. Yeah. And so there's more of a habit, et cetera, et cetera, mm -hmm. versus, you know, the drivers, I think, are always sort of comparing this stuff, earning with Uber versus other earning opportunities, including picking up, you know, a part-time job within the services industry mm -hmm. or whatever. So speaking about acquisition, I want to sort of shift the conversation away from, from Uber a little bit and look at sort of, I don't know if I want to call it a trend, but something we've seen with a lot of high-profile startups, particularly in the e-commerce space, right? where they've raised hundreds of millions of dollars and just gone all in on acquisition. 
and scenes for this local maximum that peaks and trails off and they, they end up crashing back to earth because there's no retention there. What's the big lesson that we should be taking from this and why do we keep seeing it? Right. Yeah, I think this is one of the reasons why these business models that have like these B2B SaaS companies that have like a recurring you know, revenue model, mm-hmm. like that's very nice. Yeah. The transactional marketplace like Uber, where you have where riders can actually use it every day for commuting. It's it's very nice because that regularity and that habit formation sort of means that you have this LTV. And it also means that that engagement can power organic acquisition right. because you naturally tell your friends about it. Right. Mm-hmm. Like going back to the, you know, kind of the Dropbox example where you look at Slack, you look at a bunch of these you know, the thing that's really nice is that you have a natural network formation that sort of happens. And then every user has a has the opportunity to then acquire one of their coworkers, you know, and, and you can analyze it even more, right? Like, you know, the products that, for example, are like DocuSign, mm-hmm. where, you know, folks that are collaborating within a workflow kind of you involve people from across companies, that's going to be naturally even more viral than something that sort of just exists within a company. Right. How many folks have discovered Intercom because, you know, they see the little thing know, on the bottom yep. right and have a conversation <laughs> with someone and they right. happen to have a business that encounters a lot of this. Exactly. Industries. And they're like, oh, I want that, too. Yeah. Right. And so you get all this like free, really interesting, you know, acquisition that comes from that. I think the, the you know, when I look at some of the high profile cases that didn't work, there's a couple things that I think work in concert to make them more difficult. The first is you have an acquisition model that is kind of a single channel, right? Maybe that's Facebook ads, maybe that's Google ads, maybe it's, you know, SEO, maybe it's, you know, one of these things, but you especially don't have any, you know, natural virality, natural kind of network, you know, kind of thing in there. So I think that's one thing. The second is that, especially when when we're talking about, you know, let's keep beating up on (laughs) e-commerce. I think one of the things with e-commerce is that, you know, oftentimes if you're buying something like a mattress or you're buying something that's like a car, you know, this is something that only happens. If it know, does its very job, that's a one decade purchase. Right, exactly. And so because of that, you end up in this whole acquisition treadmill mm-hmm. where you got to run really, really, really fast, you know, while this whole thing is going. And then, by the way, if you're on a single point of failure on your acquisition channel, then, you know, a lot of times these acquisition channels are a little bit like this arbitrage that kind of exists for a period of time. Yeah. And if you hit it at exactly the right period of time, you can build a pretty decent company but then eventually you should just plan on losing it, right? This whole thing is also another reason why a lot of games companies are are hard to fund uh, from a venture perspective yeah. because, you know, there's built-in natural churn, right? Dating apps are also like yeah. this, built-in natural churn. If you do, if if you do succeeds, your job, then right, you know like every user. <laughs> exactly, that's right. So you have that combined with, again, you know, this desire that you have to actually buy the traffic because, it's very hard in a dating app to be like, oh, like you should download this too. Like that kind of doesn't make sense, uh-huh. right? So I think, you know, this is the kind of thing to watch out for, especially if you're building something that is in, you know, fintech in particular, like personal finance, yeah. right? Um, things like healthcare, right? These are all things that you have to be very careful about and make sure that you understand how those dynamics are going to play out long term. Mm-hmm. I'm just going to pause the podcast there for a second to tell you that the Intercom Customer Service Trends Report 2024 is out now. We asked 2,000 plus customer service teams across the globe how they are meeting the challenges and opportunities of 2024. In it, you'll see this year's top five customer service trends plus strategies to meet rising customer expectations. You can find the report at inter.com forward slash 2024 trends. Okay, back to today's episode. So then on the topic of channels then, 
you wrote a really great piece last year outlining this dichotomy where startups are getting cheaper and cheaper to build, but more and more expensive to grow. And I right. th- your core thesis there really was that virality almost naturally as a channel is is peaking. So what should listeners take into account and look at as a result of that? Is it that paid acquisition is just much more of an important tactic or where, where should our mindset be? Right. Yeah. So, so, you know, just to quickly kind of summarize the essay I wrote, you know, the idea is that especially in pure consumer products, there was a period of time where, you know, we had like address book importers and like, you may remember that, you, you know, it used to be when you got an invite mm-hmm. to a product from a friend, you were like, oh my God, what is this? Yeah. This is so cool. You know, I want <laughs> I want to use this. And people just kind of get used to that. And so eventually you get to a point where, especially now that we've gone to mobile, we don't have the concept of contact importers in that work as effectively yeah. as the ones before. Also because of the fact that, you know, email spam and text spam are very different things than that. The latter, there's actually lots of laws around mm-hmm. it, TCPA, et cetera. And like the intermediaries like Twilio have like a very, um, you know, strict stance on that stuff. And so what it means is that, you know, virality is much harder. The spammy kind of virality that we were seeing you know, during the Facebook platform mm-hmm. and days, you know, is, is sort of not, not well, there the peak, peak time of social media. Right. Yeah. That said, right, I'm still hugely bullish about, I think what, what you have to do then is one of a couple of things. One, one thing you could do is you could, you could work in a different area where, you know, these channels sort of haven't been exhausted yet. Mm-hmm. Right. And so I think one of the areas that I'm super excited about within all the B2B kind of workplace stuff is, my calendar has all the information about who I'm meeting on a day-to-day basis, mm-hmm. right? The documents that I'm editing and everyone else's edits on the document tell me all the folks who are interested in the topics that I'm interested in, right? right? And my email inbox is completely obvious, right? But even some of the other tools like Slack and Asana and so on, like give a really great signals on, on who I'm collaborating with. And I've actually seen very few products that are like really build on that idea and make that aware. I feel like that's just like this data, this, this, the workplace graph that's just like sitting there. Mm -hmm. Right. And so I think, you know, I'm really excited to see what, where people take that. And that's a lot of that is, is really taking consumer ideas and bringing them into the workplace and then, you know, adjusting them within your workplace. You're not going to need to follow your coworkers, right? Like you're just on teams automatically, Mm -hmm. you know, you're on the same email domains, right? It's much easier in many ways. So that's, that's one way. The other way is, within consumer is that you have to make, you have to figure out how to make a lot more money and then to use different forms of paid acquisition, right? So, you know, if you are a, a product that figures out a awesome consumer subscription business, or you figured out a really high, you know, ticket item like housing yeah. or cars or something like that, and you're able to more efficiently, you know, get to that, then all of a sudden you can innovate within paid acquisition. You can innovate using, you know, you can do paid referrals, right? You can do paid ads. You can sort of figure out different kind of incentives. That's actually, you know, as on a total side tangent, I think, you know, we're very early on a lot of the crypto stuff. Yeah. But I think one of the areas that I'm very excited about is as we see applications being developed on crypto, you know, if we kind of fast forward a couple of years, I think there's going to be a lot of really innovative ways that people are going to, you know, play around with, whether it's referrals or different kind of incentivized engagement. So looking at all this from a higher level, there's always going to be eventually some diminishing returns on on these channels. And that's sort of coined by 
one of your, I think your most famous essays, The Law of Shitty Click-Throughs, probably being tired of being asked about it by now. But no, yeah. no, it's great. No, it's always true. It's always true. No, I love it. But I, yeah, I it is, it is, is sort of yeah. always true. It's a timeless concept. And so right. what I'm curious about is in the time since you have written that, there have been you know totally new channels that have emerged, like the idea to you know, work within messengers. At the same time, other new aspects of mobile. I mean, how have you seen that observation materialize right. in, in these new areas? Right. Yeah, I, I think I think, you know, just to kind of summarize the idea, when we go back and look at online just like banner ads, mm -hmm. the very first banner ad that was on, you know, at the time hotwired.com had a, you know, 70% plus click through rate. And now 20 years later, you look at the average click through rate and it's like 0.05%, you know, or whatever, yeah. right? It's like very low. And and anyone that's that's kind of, you know, worked in the industry long enough has seen this also happen with email. They've seen this happen with SMS. They've yeah. seen this happen with, you know, all sorts of things. And there's a bunch of reasons, right? It's like you have competition, you have the platforms themselves being like, hey, we need to like clamp down on this. Mm -hmm. There's just, you know, literally just habituation from end users where they're like, oh, it used to be fun to get an invite from my friend, but now like I'm getting it all the time. So it's just less effective, yep. right? You have a lot more noise. crowding, crowding effect, mm -hmm. right? So there's a bunch of these, you know, you know, different, different reasons. And I think that this is just, you know, the reason why I call it the law of shitty click-throughs is that it is something that uh, has been with us for a really long time and will continue to be with us for a really long time. And what, what that means is for all of us that are in, you know, marketing and growth is that we have to continually find what the fresh powder is yeah. because, you know, inevitably whatever worked in the past will no longer work, right? It's it's one of these things where that's exactly why by the time something is a case study that's been published on Medium, you know, that something's going to work, then it's like, all right, it's probably done yeah. at, that, at that point, right? <laughs> but that means like everyone also has to do it, but then you have to move beyond that. Right, exactly. And so I think, you know, to your point, I think a lot of the interesting work that's happening out there ends up happening on, you know, these quote unquote frontier platforms, right? Like these are areas where maybe some of the big companies haven't quite, you know, wised up to it yet. You know, maybe they haven't started experimenting or maybe the channel's like a little bit too, too small, you know, and these are the things that look like either, for example, you know, Alexa, you know, skills, right? Mm -hmm. New yep. Alexa skills, Right. And sort of, hey, all that stuff is happening, et cetera. The, the other big area that, that I have found really fascinating is all of the different companies and the ecosystem that's being built around like gaming right yeah. now. So you can live stream things, you can do voice chat, you can do all of these different things that are around these ephemeral networks mm -hmm. of players Absolutely. that are getting together over a short period of time to play one game. You're not going to want to add all these folks to your Skype or to your, you know, Gchat because you are literally just coming together for one game. Yeah. However, a product that understands that ephemeral network can then build a whole ecosystem around it. And that's what we've seen, obviously, with Discord and Twitch and many of the other folks that are out there. So, so I, I think, you know, it, it behooves all of us, I think, in the industry to really stay on top of these trends and to see what's working because otherwise we're just always in this constant competition where all of our stuff you know, stops working over time. Exactly. Yeah. And I, I like that you mentioned that because it, it really is true. Like once, once the case study is on medium, it's has the appearance of this silver bullet that can be applied anywhere when in fact, that's really not the case. Right. right. So one place where I think that you've done a really admirable job of trying to communicate those, those higher ideas is through Reforge with Brian Balfour. Yep. And speaking of your busy spring, I know you just finished the retention series. You've also got the growth series. What educational void is the team trying to, to fill with these programs? Right. Yeah. So um, a little bit on Reforge. So 
Brian Balfour was previously the VP of growth at HubSpot, which obviously invented inbound marketing and a bunch of other important concepts. Um, So Brian and I have have known each other for a long time. We would constantly, we write the same kind of content, meaning they're long form. We attempt to be as thoughtful as possible. We try to, you know, sort of not do the like quick tips and tricks (laughs) kind of thing. And so we really like have come to relate on that. And, you know, what we talk about often is that the current form of executive education is kind of broken. You know, it sort of needs to be augmented because I think for all of us, because especially in technology, and we're kind of all on the forefront of this, you know, we're needing to learn all of these frontier skill sets constantly. Yeah. Right. And we all need to become these like lifelong learners because if you master something, then two years later, there's a new platform, there's a whole new ecosystem of, you know, startups, and you have to just do it over and over again. And so what Brian and I've been doing is we go out and we try to collect, and we're starting with growth as kind of the first vertical. And, you know, Brian's a CEO, I'm on the board. And what we do is we basically try to gather all the folks that are kind of the masters of the frontier skill set. We literally ask people like, hey, who is the smartest person you know? Yeah. On the Casey Winters of the world. That right, kind of thing. right, exactly. You know, on retention, who's the smartest person you know about, you know, viral growth on bottoms up SaaS, right? And we gather all of those folks and we sort of package that together and you get in real life interaction with them. You get to sort of pick their brain. And, and these are all, you know, frontier skill sets where all the most amazing practitioners, they haven't written stuff down yeah. because, you know, it's changing all the time. And so, um, you know, Brian and his team are off, you know, sort of capturing all of that. And so they've sort of landed the first two programs, super high end kind of experience. And they're kind of, you know, going on and on, you know, more further on that. And so I'm, I'm super excited to be involved and and see where, where it takes us. It's a really cool program. And speaking to the fact that there's a lot of really bright minds there that you know, haven't written everything down. So um, just to close out, Andrew, we've got a quick list of questions we've been asking all of our Growth guests have come on the show this spring. <laughs> right, great. Short answers are totally fine, but uh, feel free to expand on any that you want. Uh, you ready to get started? Yes. Okay. Favorite underused growth tactic? All right. I, I think one of the most important things, especially when it comes to consumer and then these days um, in the workplace, is that uh, your product has to be fun, <laughs> right? And uh, you know, we've gotten to a world where we're so busy measuring everything and optimizing everything that we forget, you know, how important a delightful, fun experience and a very human voice and what that does to these response rates. I think that's really relatable, particularly when you talk about the idea of consumer coming into the workplace, as we discussed earlier. Right. One book that's most influenced your thinking and why? Yeah. So I love recommending this book. It's called uh, My Life in Advertising. And it's the biography of a fellow who um, actually invented coupons he invented sort of like stunt marketing back in the day of, you know, kind of putting them in the middle of these malls, like the world's largest cake. And, you know, you mm-hmm. sort of figure all these, you know, these things out. And the reason why I find it so compelling is he's a guy that's really like invented a lot of new channels, new strategies that then, you know, folks have built on for, uh, you know, sort of many, many decades since. So speaking of people that you admire, who in the growth community do you think we have the most to learn from? I've had a couple people mention you, so this is, this is an interesting one for me. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, a, a couple of folks that that I think are, are really great. First, obviously, Brian Balfour, Casey Winters, and Sean Klaus. I think mm-hmm. those those three, you know, those three guys from Reforge are, are involved in Reforge with yeah. me for for a reason. They're sort of the most intelligent, thoughtful people from kind of different corners of of the growth ecosystem. I also have learned a ton 
working with Ed Baker and Aaron Schilkraut mm-hmm. at Uber. And funny enough, they actually had both started previous companies in the online dating world, yeah. right? And so an online dating, of course, is a two-sided market mm-hmm. that's hyper-local. And so they had just amazing instincts coming into Uber about also a two-sided hyper-local marketplace. And so that was really fun. And I, I think those guys are awesome. This is a fun one because I know that you probably look at these in a little bit more detail than most people. Favorite recent onboarding experience? Right. I I think the best one recently is actually, well, maybe I'll do a little lead up to it, right? I think we're so used to the world of digital experiences, but the problem with consumers is that when you do a push notification, you have to compete with all the other push notifications, right? So I think one of the most amazing new trends that's happening is like how physical objects that are internet connected interrupt your real life experience Mm -hmm. as you're walking around, as you're kind of moving around your own space. And so I'll use two examples there. So one is obviously all the new line bikes Mm -hmm. (laughs) uh, that are now in San Francisco, where the onboarding experience of walking around the city and then seeing this like green thing Mm -hmm. that's sitting there And then, by the way, watching people in their scooters or in their bikes zooming by, having so much fun, you know, with a big smile on their face, right? That that is an amazing onboarding experience. Totally. Like, how how could you get better than that, right? And the other one that that I want to use, it's not an onboarding, but I think it's it's you know somewhat similar, is when you have the Amazon Echo apps kind of sitting around, and you just look at them. And sometimes, by the way, while you're talking on the phone or whatever, it's, you know, it fires up and yeah. thinks, you're, it, you know, it's, it's <laughs> we've all had that, right. We've all, we all, we've all had that experience. I think that is an awesome retention mechanic. That's like a real life retention mechanic uh, that you're looking at something uh-huh. and then you're like, oh yeah, like that's a real thing. That's, that's a tool it. at my disposal. Yeah. Right. And so I think, you know, um, as we see more sort of internet connected devices and products, we're going to see more, more and more of this kind of phenomenon where we'll figure out how to optimize it you know, to, to make it even more interesting and presentable, you know, and, and go from there. All right. Last one for you. Um, you've consulted a lot of growth teams. What's one common mistake you keep seeing them make when it comes to running experiments? Right. I think my favorite thing to talk about here is that a lot of folks spend their time, you know, they pick the metrics first and then they're just trying to increase them as, as much as possible. Right. And, and that's a good place to start. But the problem is that especially you you have to be so careful about picking your metrics. And in fact, the thing you should pick before is you should pick what your strategy is. If your strategy is, hey, I'm going to make money on, you know, these business customers that are going to pay me. And then I'm going to use that money to buy more business customers. Right. Or, you know, some some kind of loop like that. Then what you do is then you pick the metrics that validate that that strategy is working and then you run the experiments after, right? I think it's very easy to get caught up in just picking kind of random off the shelf KPIs. Like you're like, oh yeah, MAU is good. Like, okay, MRR is good. Let's just start optimizing them without really thinking through like, okay, how does it all fit together? Andrew, this has been awesome. Thanks so much for inviting us over to your new digs uh, and the coffee and warm hospitality. Where can our listeners go to follow what's next for you and your journey here at Andreessen, your writing, are you speaking anywhere anytime soon? Right. Yeah. Um, so I am finishing my first month at the firm. And one of the really exciting things for me is I'm going to be dedicating a lot more time to writing coming up. I think through all of my time at Uber, I think I maybe wrote half dozen essays or something like that. So I'm going to try to get into a couple times a month cadence. If be I careful, we're going to hold you to it. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Yes. So I'm going to be writing on my blog, which is uh, andrewchen.co.
Great. And uh, you can subscribe to your newsletter there as well. Thanks again. This has been a lot of fun. Awesome. Thank you. You've been listening to the Inside Intercom podcast. For more episodes, visit soundcloud.com slash intercom. If you'd like to subscribe, search for Inside Intercom in iTunes or Stitcher. And for even more great content, check out blog.intercom.com.